As Tim mentioned, I uh, um, uh, love to come here. It's a joy to, to be able to be here every Sunday we come to Grace and Truth. And, uh, it's a delight, and I love meeting you guys and getting to know you. And so even afterwards, come, and I'd love to get to know you more. Um, as Tim mentioned, we come from a, a church up in, uh, uh, I guess it's Linwood now, yeah, it shifts because we were at Coram Deo Fellowship, but just recently that church merged with another church called uh, uh, Grace Fellowship, and now we're, we're a combined, we're a merged church, Crossway Fellowship, and it's been a real joy. And so Crossway Fellowship brings you greetings and uh, extends their blessing to you this morning as well. Um, Let's turn to Luke chapter 1. Uh, that's our uh, passage this morning. And we're going to begin at verse 46 and go through verse 55. This is Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Let's pray. Lord, there is so much hope in Mary's song of praise, and I pray that you would give me uh, wisdom. You would give me grace to be able to make this passage more clear and, and encouraging. I pray that every one of your saints today would be uh, built up, would be edified, and would be infused with joy as they consider the great promises that come with the Messiah and His reign. And Lord, I pray that if there is any in here this morning who do not yet know You, who are not uh, committed followers of You, that You would work in their heart and shed Your light into their hearts that they might embrace You and follow You um, with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, we ask these things in Your name. Amen. So I mentioned uh, our church just merged, and uh, we now have a combined elder team of about uh, nine men. And uh, we recently got together to have a kind of a Christmas gathering. And as we were uh, eating dinner together, um, one of one elder was asked, um, how are things going? And he started to share, that elder began to share, that actually things have been pretty hard. His uh, father-in-law had just moved in with him, and he's an unbeliever, very obstinate, very difficult to work with, and... That situation has caused uh, se- severe challenges within, within the family, um, not to get into it too much, but it's been difficult. And after that, another couple started sharing about the crushing challenges of having found out earlier that their, uh, one of their children had been molested by one of their close friends. And then another couple from that began to share how uh, they had been abused as children. Another elder grew up with an alcoholic father. Another couple has an autistic child. And all have suffered significantly in their life. They continue to face great challenges. And so this prompted discussion with 
within even our elder team, how some of these things aren't known. Why, the reality that often when you ask a person how they're doing, even within the church, people are hesitant to share the challenges they face. The fact that life really is difficult. The fact that they really are suffering. In fact, you might ask a person that's going, undergoing a significant trial how they're doing, and the response is, I'm okay, or I'm doing fine. And so that brought up this question, well, why is that? Why is that? And one elder suggested that he thinks it's partly due to a misunderstanding of the gospel. Uh, the primary way the gospel was shared as he was raised was uh, Campus Crusades for Spiritual Laws, which is a, a, a fair gospel presentation. And it begins with this statement, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life, which is true, but how often that's been misunderstood. And because of how people understand the, the phrase wonderful. What does it mean that God has a wonderful plan? And often what the Bible would speak to regarding that is often misinterpreted by many people. They assume that what that means is if I choose to follow Christ, then things are going to be easy for me. He's going to bless me. I'm going to prosper in my work. I'm, my, my path is going to be easy. There's going to be few difficulties and few trials, or at least less. When in reality, the Bible seems to suggest just the opposite. After all, Christ said, if you want to follow after me, you need to take up your cross. Follow after me. And he meant an instrument of execution. So what are the consequences when a person comes to Christ assuming that God has, God's just going to make things easy? Well, when those trials come, they're probably going to say, where was God? God, I'm following you. Why are you allowing these awful things to happen to me? Where were you when this took place? Or they might ask, what are people going to think when they find out? Because if, the, if, 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 if I'm suffering, then it must be because God's punishing me in some way. I'm not a good enough Christian. He's, he's pounding on me. He's punishing me because I'm, I'm not meeting up to his standard. And so there's this fear of other people's self-righteousness. Or maybe they just feel shame. And so the walls go up. And so if you ask them how they're doing, there's no way they're going to share. Because they're ashamed. What if people find out? Then they might not think that I love God as much as I do. And so it's true that God has a wonderful plan. But wonderful does not necessarily mean easy or without significant suffering. And the text again for this evening's message is the Song of Mary in Luke chapter 1. And I want, before I get into the passage itself, I want to explain where I want to go with it. And part of that is, I'm assuming none of your lives are easy. I'm assuming they haven't been. And if they have been, I'm assuming they're not going to be that way for long. Because you're flesh and blood, and you live in a fallen world with pain and suffering. And if you're a follower of Christ... It's probably just going to be even more difficult. And I want to give some encouragement. And I think that's what Mary offers to us here. She is a song of praise, a song of rejoicing in the midst of very difficult circumstances, as we'll come to see. And likewise, I want to tie it to Christmas, because, of course, she's rejoicing in the fact that she's been promised to be the mother of the Messiah. Christ is going to be born. The Messiah is going to be born. And she rejoices in that fact. And that's, of course, what we celebrate in Christmas. But I say I want us to rejoice in Christmas 
coming from this perspective. I love Christmas. I love the lights. I love the music, uh, the traditions, everything that comes with it. But what I often find is it's really those things in themselves don't bring a lot of joy to me. And I know for many, Christmas can actually be one of those painful times of year. Because it reminds people of loss. Christmas is very nostalgic. And if what you're reminded of is pain and loss, then that nostalgia really is only more painful. But Mary's perspective on the Messiah's arrival is rooted in a different hope. Not one that's just based in traditions and lights and decorations. It's a hope that goes beyond those things. And one that I think can produce endurance. Joy in the midst of circumstances that are hard. As you'll remember, Mary has just recently found out that she's going to be with child. And that child is going to be the Messiah. And that prophecy was just confirmed by her cousin Elizabeth. If you look in verse, uh, sec- the section right beforehand, um, in your Bibles, Elizabeth comes to Mary and with Great joy, she exclaims with a loud cry in verse 42, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And as Mary receives that, she begins to ponder. And she begins to ponder her own circumstances. And again, let me remind you what these circumstances are like. Mary grew up in one of the lowest neighborhoods in Israel, Nazareth. It was a place of rejects. She was soon to gain a permanent reputation of being an adulteress, one that never went away, and she was going to gain this reputation as a young teenager. Moreover, consider the reality that even after the birth of Christ, things never got easier for Mary. She apparently loses her husband early in life. We hear nothing more of Joseph. It also appears that she's the only one in her family that actually believed Jesus was the Messiah. In John chapter 7, it appears that none of her sons believe upon Jesus until after his resurrection. But of course, the worst suffering in Mary's life is she had to bear personal witness to her own son's uh, trial, torture, and death. And now even after the crucifixion, we hear little else of Mary. A very unimpressive end for the mother of the Messiah. Sure, Mary was honored in being chosen the mother of the Lord, but consider that in her lifetime, she never got to experience many of the things she is praising God for in this song. She was never really able to uh, utilize this blessing for any personal benefit. And like us, Mary was able to enjoy the spiritual blessings that the Messiah brings. And therefore, we too can find hope in, in difficult circumstances that we can, we can enjoy those spiritual blessings. Even though in our life things may never seem to improve, things may seem to get even worse and worse and more difficult, but we can find hope as we consider what it means that the Messiah has come. So let's consider what we can learn from Mary. Now the first thing I want to point out, in which I find truly remarkable, is the selfless nature of Mary's praise. Uh, and this is the first point in your outline. Joyful praise is really rooted in scripture-wrought humility. Let's look at verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, 
For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary has just been told she is going to be the mother of the Messiah. She's going to be the mother of the arm of the Lord, the one prophesied who would, who would bring peace to Israel and shatter all of Israel's enemies. But what you'll notice is what stokes her fire in this song is not that she has been blessed with his honor. Not particularly. What excites her is that God has been faithful to his covenant. God's answering his long, long-awaited promise. Finally, the Messiah has come. And this praise is rooted in her scripture-saturated mind. First of all, note the first phrase there in verse 46. And Mary said. It seems like a pretty simple thing, but that word is contrasted to Elizabeth's response in verse 42. Elizabeth, again, exclaims with a loud cry when she meets Mary. And then in response, you have Mary saying. She's just speaking. It's, and, and really, in contrast with Elizabeth's glad shout of excitement, Mary's response is calmer and more contemplative than her cousin's. And it prompts Mary into this meditation upon the implications of Messiah's coming. And you'll notice that Mary's song is filled to the brim with Scripture. Although only a few lines are direct quotes from Scripture, which most translations will point out, all of it has multiple counterparts in the Old Testament. Let me show you this through the next slide. This is a chart where you have Mary's uh, Magnificat, Luke chapter 1, 46 to 56, and uh, paralleled with each verse is some Old Testament texts that have similar phrases. Hi, Daniel. Verses 46, 48, and 51 are paralleled with 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. And that's Hannah's prayer. And then you have verse 46, parallel of 1 Samuel 2, 1. Verse 47 with Habakkuk 3, 18. Verse 48 with 1 Samuel, Genesis, Malachi. Verse 49 with Job, Psalm 126, 111. Psalm, verse 50, Psalm 103 with verse, 7, uh, verse 17. Also Psalm 145. Verse 51, Psalm 89, Job 5, Daniel 4. And again with Psalm 52, 53, or verse 52, 53, 54, 55. Mary is just unloading her understanding of the Messiah and uh, the implications of that, what that means in this song. She's, t- she's praising God as she recognizes this is what the Messiah is going to bring. This is, who he, this is what God is like. This is his character. And what really what it demonstrates is that Mary has truly hidden God's word in her heart. She recognizes that the child that's going to be born to her is not merely a boy. It's the long, he's the long-awaited Messiah that's going to save Israel. So we must conclude from Mary's joyful response that despite the difficult circumstances in her life, in the midst of pain, she can have joy as she considers What's, what Scripture has taught her. And note that it, her mind is not simply Scripture-saturated. It's also God-centered. Look at verse 46. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord. And that's where the term magnificat comes from. It's the translation from the Latin Vulgate. Magnificat, which means I, I magnify. And that's her goal, to magnify God's grace. And that's really what this song is about. And notice the phrases she uses to describe God. She calls Him the Mighty One. 
which is an Old Testament term used to depict the God who fights on behalf of his people. Holy is his name. It refers to the fact that God exercises unique and sovereign authority over everything that happens. And the use of these terms fits the fact that the purpose of the prayer is to illuminate the mercy and grace and glory of God. But although her focus is to exalt God, she doesn't pretend a false humility by ignoring the fact that God has chosen her to be the mother of Christ. She, she mentions it. She, God has looked upon me. All will call me blessed. However, her focus is not really upon the blessing of being chosen to be the mother of the Messiah. Notice what she says. He has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. See, in fact, as this line puts out, the, her purpose in bringing herself into the prayer is on the amazing fact that even God would extend such an honor to someone so seemingly insignificant, so seemingly so insignificant. Why would he choose Mary from Nazareth? But he has chosen me. He's looked upon me. And that's why she says he's looked upon the humble estate of his servant. Humble estate is, is not so much referring to her humble mindset that she's humble, but it's her life conditions. She's grown up in poverty. She has nothing to boast of in her life. And so she, she's not boasting in her humility, but she's demonstrating that, that she doesn't understand why she of all people would be blessed with this honor. And the fact that she uses the phrase servant is also telling. That's the word slave, doulos in the Greek. Which means she recognizes her life is not her own. And if God has called her to this purpose, she's going to embrace it even if it means scorn. See, she gets it. She gets what it means to be a follower of Christ. She got it before Paul got it. Remember what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2? Verses 5 through 8, it's another good Christmas verse. Paul exhorts the Philippians, have this mind, which means mindset, this, this, this way of thinking, this, this value system, the way you make decisions. Have this mind among yourselves, which was the same as Christ's, who although he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he took on the form of a slave, same word. Servant and slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what Paul's saying is, Philippians, you need to have the same mindset that Christ had, not considering his own rights. He had the right to be worshipped as God, but he set that right aside in order to save the souls of men. And likewise, you, Philippians, need to have the same mindset, the same mindset that Mary had. God, if you're calling me to this, I'm your servant. I'm your slave. So Mary's response to God is, is the result of this scripture-wrought humility. As she meditated upon God's word, she began to understand what God was calling her to as a person, as a follower of him. And of course, that's the result of her praise. And I use that phrase, uh, scripture-wrought humility, very purposefully. Many of you have heard of wrought iron. Um, before the development of steel, the most prominent form of malleable iron was wrought iron. And it was mainly used to produce swords, uh, chisels, uh, cutlery, axes, edge tools. And the word wrought is just an archaic form of the word uh, to work. 
So what wrought iron is, is worked iron. Iron that's been worked by a blacksmith who has shaped it into its intended form through a punishing process of firing, of hammering, and of cooling. Until it gets into the form that, it's, that the blacksmith is seeking it to become. And scripture works similarly in our lives. As we read the word of God, as we meditate upon it, it shapes us into the image of Christ by exposing sin in our lives. By teaching us truth, by infusing us with hope, with what our lives are supposed to be about. And it works to give us this mind of Christ that Paul exhorts us to in Philippians 2, as we saw. That's what scripture is trying to do. And so as we meditate upon God's word, it gives us a mindset that recognizes our life isn't about us. It's about him. So despite the difficult circumstances in Mary's life, she finds joy as she considers that God has answered his promises in sending the long-awaited Messiah. And in verses 50 to 53, she extends this song as she considers not not just God's immediate mercy to her in her situation, but the fact that this is the way God has been throughout time. This This is his nature all the time. Notice verse 50. Uh, and this is the second point. Joyful praise is rooted in recognizing God's faithfulness. Verse 50, it says, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And that word mercy, I want to point out, it's the Old Testament word hased. It's where we get the term Hasidic Jew. Um, it's, 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 it means covenant faithfulness. Those who are devoted completely. Uh, it's often translated love. And it's, 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 it's the uh, Old Testament counterpart of agape love. It's love that's committed to a covenant, to a promise. The same love that a husband or a wife have to one another. It's commitment. God has this love, this faithfulness from generation to generation. And that same covenant faithfulness that God demonstrates to Mary in her life is the same faithfulness that he's demonstrated to Israel throughout time. And the same faithfulness that he continues to extend to his servants today. It's God's nature. Her point is that God is a God of faithful love and he always will be a God of faithful love. And she magnifies his faithfulness by showing how he has particularly been faithful to the weak. And she highlights this in a number of different ways. Notice verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. Mary contrasts the proud with those who fear him. And the implication is that God has mercy to those who who fear him and demonstrate that in their humility. But those who feel that they have no need for him, who find their their value or their pride and their spiritual or material attainments, those will be scattered. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. The mighty, it refers to the movers and shakers of this earth. Those with societal influence. The ones whom names, the uh, socialites will drop at, at their cocktail parties. Politicians and governing authorities. Those who exert influence other, over others. She contrasts those with those of a humble estate. Those are the people who don't have that kind of power. Who don't have that influence. Who don't have that prestige. They're the despised of the world. The unsuccessful, the ugly, they don't have influence. And in fact, they're the ones that are oppressed by those who do. She continues, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich 
He is sent away empty. The point is, those who lack economic means, God provides for. But the rich are left without any blessing. The first being last and the last being first. And as Mary considers her present lowly circumstances and the fact that she of all people is going to be the Messiah's mother, she recognizes that is just like God. That is so like God that he would choose me. He doesn't think like man thinks. As God says in Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts. When all the world places confidence and power and strength and security and prestige and wealth, God shows that true power is manifested in humble submission to God. Because He's the one that really has power. He's the one that's really in control. He's the one raising people up and, and, and putting people down. He is in control of everything that happens. He's the one that has power. And really, so those who have power are the ones that are in submission to his will, who are in line with what he is trying to accomplish. Strength and security and comfort are his. And he is faithful to his promise. And he's faithful regardless of what we see, regardless of what we feel, regardless of what we sense. And there's so much hope for us here as Christians. Um, maybe you're like me, and, and, and when you meet somebody, um, and they ask you, oh, what do you do? And uh, you start to share, and you can tell that they're unimpressed. You know, oh, okay. You know, maybe you go to a high school reunion or something, and everybody's boasting and all that they've accomplished, and you just feel like, I can't even fit into this conversation. Or you're with a bunch of friends, and they're talking about something, and they're all experts in this, and, they, and you try to chime in, you realize, i got nothing to offer. And as Christians, the reason I even bring up those things, as Christians, our temptation is um, to find our significance in the things of the world, just like the world does. And when you, when you make choices not to live after, uh, for the things of this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, the things that, that, that the world clambers after and, and, and seeks with all their heart, and you choose to ignore that in order to just live a life of simple faithfulness to God, and you run into people who don't find worth in those things, it's easy to lose heart. And it's easy to get to, tempted to think, okay, in order for me to ingratiate myself, to, to even have more influence, even a Christian influence, I need to be more successful. And it's, and it's easy to, to think about how can I elevate myself in other people's eyes so that I can even be useful. It's tempting. But as we recognize God favors those who don't live after all the things that this world admires, but who simply seek to be his humble servants. And are willing to let go of all that the world offers. There's so much hope here for us. There's so much hope. And maybe you'll find that you make decisions in order to serve Christ. Maybe it's you sought to adopt a person or you're, you're taking in um, uh, 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 um, uh, people who have needs. Maybe... You've chosen to have a lower income so that you can serve the Lord. Maybe you choose to, to, to sacrificially give 
when everybody else that you work with just indulges. Maybe you've had the challenge of needing to confront a person, and the result of that has been a brokenness in the relationship. And it seems that every choice that you make that seems to be for God and have some eternal consequence just ends up being like a a landmine that blows up in your face. And you begin to think, why am I doing this? What's, what is, is it really worth it? And it, this question becomes all the more prominent when devastating things happen. Somebody you love dies. The unexpected happens. And you're shattered. And you think, this was our dream. And now that dream is gone. Was it worth it? In Psalm 73, Asaph confesses, that he was deeply troubled when he saw the wickedness that seemed to surround him. Wicked seemed to prosper. The faithful were scorned. But it's when he began to view his life from God's perspective, he saw things in a different light. And so I, w- I just want to turn there to Psalm 73, if you have your Bibles with you, and just highlight how Asaph worked through this very same issue. How do I rejoice in God when it seems that, in all my goodness, things are just worse? beginning of the psalm in verse 3 asaph says i was envious of the arrogant when i saw the prosperity of the wicked and in verse 12 he continues behold these are the wicked always at ease they increase in riches all in vain i have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence for all day long i have been stricken and rebuked every morning Verse 21, go down to there. He says, And when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He's praying to God. And notice how he continues. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. He recognizes that in all his pain, God is with him. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. And this is, this is the heart of the psalm. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And God is my portion forever. Verse 26, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, and I may tell of all your works. Asaph struggled with the same thing we struggle with. Is it worth it? Yeah, it's worth it. It's so worth it because of what God has promised. And that's what Mary understood. And this becomes even more clear as you look at verses 54. My third point, joyful praise is rooted in faith in future promises. Faith in future promises. It's important to note that when Mary mentions all these merciful acts of God, she recognizes that all these things will ultimately be accomplished when the Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom upon the earth. Notice verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. When the Messiah comes, he's going to establish God's kingdom, fulfilling all the promises that he made to Abraham. And there is a lot that the Old Testament says about what's going to happen when the Messiah establishes his kingdom upon the earth. It's a large portion of the Old Testament. So I I won't give you all of those all of those scriptures, but I do want to bring up a, a, a list of things of what the Messiah will do 
when he establishes his kingdom. And note these things. And this is what Mary is praising God for, the the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah is going to establish his kingdom in holiness. And God's holiness is going to prevail and pervade in his kingdom. The world's value system will no longer be in accord with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. But it will now be in accord with divine perfection. People will also begin to bear their own responsibility. And truth is going to characterize all matters. Social justice will prevail in every class and race of mankind. The Messiah is going to abolish war and establish peace in the world. The Messiah is going to then establish himself as an international authority and establish a world capital at Jerusalem. Furthermore, language is going to cease to be a barrier to all human interaction and relationships. The Messiah is going to put an end to disease and physical deformities. On top of this, in order to fulfill all the promises made to Abraham, God is going to um, make the land of Israel more fruitful and inhabitable. He's going to even change the nature of animals to accomplish those promises. And it's in light of all these things that Mary says in verse 54, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. Mary's praise of God's character is rooted in a solid understanding of Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. You might be wondering, prophecy? Wait a second. Mary's Mary's saying this in the past tense, as it's translated in many versions. And the truth is, yes, she is. Mary is uh, using what the scholars call a prophetic aorist, and it's to depict something with certainty. It's stated in the past tense. It's as good as done. Mary concludes, if the Messiah is in my womb, then all these promises about the Messiah are as good as done. They're done. It's happening. And she's praising God. Finally, God is going to be faithful to everything that he promised to Abraham. And she is excited and joyful. But did Mary get to see all these promises? Experience all these promises? She understood the implications of the Messianic reign, but she never tasted the fulfillment of all of them. She never got to experience all of them. And so what we see Mary doing is praising God ultimately for his future promises. Promises that she never really experienced in her lifetime. She had her focus on the future, or as John Piper would say, her hope was in God's future grace. His promises. And this is particularly seen in her closing stanza where she praises God for his faithfulness to the covenant with Abraham. But of course this begs the question, why not? Why didn't the Messiah, when he came, establish his kingdom as it's expressed in the Old Testament? Why not? Why didn't he destroy all of Israel's enemies? Why didn't he establish his physical kingdom upon the earth? Mercy. Mercy. In fact, that's what everybody expected. That's why Judas rejected him. Because he didn't. Think about what would have happened if he would have. Yes, Israel's enemies would have been destroyed. Rome would no longer have been a threat. One of the other nations. 
and Israel would have enjoyed all these blessings. And then they would have died. And then they would have had to face in eternity the punishment of God. Because they wouldn't have had their sins atoned for. In order for people to be reconciled with God, there needed to be an atonement for sin. Jesus had to die first. He couldn't establish his kingdom as it's prophesied until he had first paid for the sins of us. If there was no atonement for sin, atonement for sin, then there would be little benefit to living in the Messiah's kingdom since death comes after judgment. Hebrews 9.27. Okay. Prompts this question then. Well, why not? Why didn't he establish it after he rose from the dead? Okay, the, the, his, the, the sins were paid for. He died. He rose again. Why not then? The, the, the sins are forgiven for all who follow him. And in fact, that's what the disciples expected. Look at Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Before Jesus ascends, his followers were with him and they asked him, Verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, notice he doesn't rebuke them, he doesn't say, what are you talking about? He says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But notice what he does say. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Why didn't Christ establish his kingdom after the resurrection? Mercy. So that the Gentiles could be saved. This is the Great Commission. Go into all the world that everybody, everybody, people from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation might be reconciled to me and might praise me. It was God's plan from eternity past that all people everywhere would worship and exalt him. That's what we were created for. But we reject that purpose and we, instead we, we seek to live for ourselves. Seeking to exalt ourselves with the same things that the world seeks to exalt themselves in. And we shake our fist at God saying we don't want to live for you. We want to exalt ourselves. It's about us. We're self-centered. And the only thing that can change that. Is Christ changing our heart? The atonement, having our sins forgiven, following after Him. Christ waited so that the Gentiles also could experience the blessings of the new covenant. And that's the reason Christ is still waiting. Christ says the gospel is going to go out into the ends of all the earth, and then, then the end's going to come. Christ is still extending mercy. So that people might repent and believe. And then he's going to return. And then he's going to establish his kingdom. When all people have heard. But of course Mary didn't understand this. They were always a part of God's plan of course. But Mary was never able to experience most of these promises coming to fulfillment. She was able to partake of the spiritual blessings. Of the new covenant through faith in her son. But not all the physical ones. Not all the ones that she mentions in this song. But she exalts God nonetheless because it's as good as done. And likewise it's the same thing for us. We don't get to experience all of these blessings. 
But we get the spiritual blessings and the hope. That's what I want to focus on. The hope of the Messiah is not simply forgiveness. And that is huge. But there's more. He's coming again. And that's, that's, why, that's why that should be our greatest desire is to see Christ return. Come, Lord Jesus. Should be the cry of our hearts that we might experience all that God has purposed for his people in Christ. And just like Mary, our lives may continue to get more difficult. But we can rejoice as she does in the faith that God will fulfill all of his promises. So as we approach this Christmas, let us consider what the coming of the Messiah means. A full atonement. Because God has become man, we can be forgiven. God was forsaken. Christ was forsaken. So that, so that we could be forgiven for our sins. We can be, we've been reconciled to God. And secondly, the Messiah's coming means the fulfillment of all the promises in the Old Testament. All the promises in the New Testament. It's going to happen. It's as good as done. And I would encourage you this Christmas, spend time reading these Old Testament texts on the Messiah. And we, there is so much to meditate upon and to delight in as we consider what this world is going to be like when he returns. Meditate on passages like Isaiah 65, um, Isaiah chapter 8, and so many others that talk about the Messiah. And I'm going to close with an excerpt from the following poem that I came across this week. It's called Justified Forevermore, wherein the, pipe, uh, the, the author, John Piper, tries to depict what life is going to be like when Jesus the Messiah comes the second time. And I'll close with this. And then the Lord wiped away every tear away and turned to see his bride. Her heart had yearned for a thousand years for this. His face shone like the sun and every trace of wrath was gone. And in her bliss, she heard the master say, watch this. Come forth, all goodness from the ground. Come forth and let the earth redound with joy. And as he spoke, the throne of God came down to earth and shone like golden crystal full of light and banished once for all the night. And from the throne, a stream began to flow and laugh. And as it ran, it made a river and a lake. And everywhere it flowed, a wake of grass broke on the banks and spread like resurrection from the dead. And in the twinkling of an eye, the saints descended from the sky. And as I knelt beside the brook to drink eternal life, I took a glance across the golden grass and saw my dog, old Blackie, fast as she could come. She leaped the stream, almost, and what a happy gleam was in her eye. I knelt to drink and knew that I was on the brink of endless joy. And everywhere I turned, I saw a wonder there, a big man running on the lawn. That's old John Young with both legs on. The blind can see a bird on wing. The dumb can lift their voice and sing. The diabetic eats at will. The coronary runs uphill. The lame can walk. The deaf can hear. The cancer-ridden bone is clear. Arthritic joints are lithe and free. And every pain has ceased to be. And every sorrow deep within. And every trace of lingering sin is gone. And all that's left is joy. In endless ages to employ the mind and heart and understand and love the sovereign Lord who planned that it should take eternity 
to lavish all this grace on me. O God of wonder, God of might, grant us elevated sight of endless days. And let us see the joy of what is yet to be and make your future make us free. And guard us by that hope that we, through grace on lands that you restore, are justified forevermore. Let's pray. Father, that is our desire. It is so easy to lose heart, to get distracted, and to think that um, all this loss is, is for nothing. All these choices that we make that seem to result in more difficulty. It's so easy to, to turn back. And God, I don't know the various ways that the people here have suffered in their life, but I pray that you would infuse their heart with joy. Help them to fully grasp the amazing promises of their future. Lord, that they would not be tempted to discouragement. They might not be tempted to lose heart. Lord, that that you would strengthen them and you would give them joy. A joy that, that would that would be confusing to the unbelievers around them. And Lord, that it would be so confusing that unbelievers might be called to ask, what is it, what is the hope that they have within them? God, that they might use that hope as an opportunity to share. Their hope is in you and all that you've promised. I pray for evangelistic opportunities. And I pray for the salvation of souls of those who do not know you. And I pray that through the power of your redeemed saints, living a life that is not for this life, but for the one to come. And I thank you that it's going to be worth it. I pray that you would extend us hope, give us strength to endure. In Christ's name, amen.